welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Robert Wright, an author of some renown and the author of a newsletter and host of a podcast, both called Non-Zero. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you laid out how a series of American presidents, from Clinton to Obama, have led us toward the current crisis by repeatedly failing to take serious account of the Russian leadership's perspective. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, I didn't mean that Russia isn't to blame for the invasion. The invasion is a violation of international law and by and large the things we did that I think increased the chances of invasion needlessly were not violations of international law. So, you know, uh, Putin is the criminal in that sense. And, and I, I personally take international law very seriously. Uh, so I think uh, that's a pretty grave transgression on his part. But still, uh, if wiser policy on our part could have prevented the horror that we're seeing in Ukraine, that would be good to know and, and you know, something to keep in mind in the future. And I think it's definitely the case. Uh, I, I believe that over the last uh, quarter century or so, our relationship with Russia has been just hugely mismanaged. Uh, I can imagine that from a Russian point of view, it seems almost as if uh, we were, you know, trying to annoy, frustrate and threaten them from their point of view. Right. Uh, even if that's not our intention. You know, I think it's always important in foreign relations, as in all other relations, to keep in mind what the perspective of the person on the other side of the table is. And I think if we had done a better job of that, a better job of you know, perspective taking or exercising cognitive empathy, whatever you want to call, just understanding what's going on in the other person's mind, I, I think we probably wouldn't be in this situation today. So I wonder if you can kind of tease out some of those specific policies. I mean, to start out, I, I think the George H.W. Bush administration gave at least verbal assurances to the Russian side at the end of the Cold War that NATO wouldn't be expanded further east than, than Germany. Um, but in this piece, you kind of laid out a number of policies in the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administration that seemed to antagonize Russia, um, uh, perhaps needlessly. Do you want to run through any of those? Yeah, first of all, it's true that we did give, during the Soviet era, Gorbachev ver verbal assurance that we would not expand NATO beyond East Germany, which was then being consolidated with, with West Germany. Um, it's also true that a number of American foreign policy luminaries warned that NATO expansion would antagonize Russia needlessly, certainly including uh, George Kennan, the famous architect of the policy of containment, and including a, a whole range of characters, including even Paul Nitze, who's very, very different from Kennan ideologically. Um, so there, there were plenty of warnings that this could be a problem. Clinton was apprised of the warnings. He went ahead anyway. As for why, I don't know. There, there, uh, first of all, there was lobbying coming from the arms industry, as is often the case, in support of NATO expansion. I gather that Clinton was also concerned about voters of Eastern European heritage. But, you know, he did go ahead with NATO expansion and then it just kept on going. You know, he just kept adding more and more 
countries. And probably the most critical threshold in that ongoing expansion came in 2008 under George W. Bush. And uh, when he seemed bound and determined to issue a kind of invitation to Ukraine and Georgia to eventually join NATO. Now, before I get into that, and of course, the membership itself never happened, but the consequences of our committing to it, I think, continue to play out today. And before I I get to that 2008 decision, I want to back up a little in, I think it was 2007, that Putin was addressing the Munich Security Conference. And he gave a, a speech that was, you know, a real barn burner, got attention at the time. He, he seemed really upset. And my own view is when somebody who has a bunch of nuclear weapons seems upset, you pay attention. You don't have to approve of their system of government or think they're a good person. In fact, in a way, if you think they're a bad person, you should probably pay more attention since nuclear, nuclear war would be very bad for all of us. And the speech, it had a couple of elements. First of all, he noted that the U.S. had been violating international law in the sense of committing transborder aggression. And by the way, at that point, Russia had not been doing that, not on his watch. OK, the U.S. had had invaded Iraq in 2003. In 1999, it had bombed uh, Serbia in support of Kosovo separatists in Serbia. And that's not to be confused, by the way, with the Bosnia intervention earlier in the 1990s. That had Security Council authorization. So that was not a violation of international law. I supported that. But the Kosovo intervention was just a NATO adventure. They couldn't get Security Council authorization, in part because Russia so fiercely opposed it. You know, they had, had a close relationship to Serbia. And we did that anyway. We invaded Iraq and Putin noted, like, these are violations of international law. And at that point, again, he was in a position to give us a sermon on the importance of respecting the UN Charter because Russia had been respecting it. We hadn't. He emphasized that. He also alluded to NATO expansion, made it very clear he didn't he didn't want this to, to continue. Uh, he didn't want NATO to keep moving closer and closer to Russia. Um so when when Bush in 2008 insisted on going ahead and and basically committing to eventual NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia, it was all the more a slap in the face to Putin. It was almost as if, you know, we 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 are determined to show you how little you matter in the scheme of things. Right. And, and I, I want to say. I, I think this the, the psychology of respect and status matters, you know, like a lot of people in the so-called restrainer coalition who want to see more restraint in America's exercise of military force. I have something of a realist sensibility, but but the kind of pure realists see everything as a sheer national security calculation. Right. So they would see Putin as almost just a computing machine, seeing that that expanding NATO, NATO to to Ukraine would be some kind of threat and reacting to that. But I, I think in the real world, psychological factors like respect and status matter. 
And we were saying, basically, with, with, with this 2008 decision, we really don't think Russia is worth much respect. We don't think Vladimir Putin is worth much respect. We don't think you have the stature that warrants respect. At least that is the way we would naturally be perceived as as communicating in that situation. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see Putin, somebody who kind of famously has a chip on his shoulder, right? To see Putin as as perceiving the message that way. So in any event, we went we went on with that uh, against, by the way, the wishes of France and Germany. Uh, George Bush had to really twist arms to get a kind of compromise uh, thing passed that committed in a vague way to membership, but still the deed was done. And it was only after that that Putin himself started uh, fooling around in in his neighborhood in ways that could be uh, uh, seen as violations of international law. Famously in Georgia, shortly thereafter, I mean, that situation turns out to be complicated. It's actually less clear violation of international law than our invasion of Iraq, I would say. But still, uh, you know, it it it, uh, I'm happy to call it that. But but uh, a violation of international law. But but the point is, you know, he he only did that after warning us that, you know, he we just couldn't continue with a with a situation where America runs roughshod over international law and evades countries and bombs them when it wants and expect nobody else to do that. So anyway, then then the Georgia thing happens. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically relations continue to deteriorate. Now, a big, um, uh, a big year, of course, is in 2014 in the, uh, you know, the so-called Maidan revolution. Some people call it a coup, whatever. It's a non-democratic transfer of power in Ukraine, a democratically elected president who had somewhat pro-Russian sympathies is basically chased out of office, I think, for fear of his life. So it wasn't, uh, you know, a a great uh, exercise in in democracy, I would say. And the U.S. supported it and arguably played a role in making it happen. I mean, if you want, we can get into the details and the various things we did that would naturally lead Putin to see it as maybe a U.S. orchestrated coup or something, whether or not that's a literally accurate description. But it was a case where, again, you know, if we had thought about how this is going to play out in in Russian psychology, how that our role in that was going to be perceived and thought about the fact that, look, Putin has nuclear weapons He's already said he really hates the idea of Ukraine in NATO. You know, we might have uh, thought twice about doing things that could be perceived are orchestrating a revolution, a coup, whatever, that led to a, a government in Ukraine less sympathetic to Russia. One consequence of the change in government in Ukraine to a very anti-Putin government was it gave Putin reason to worry about the status of a very important Russian naval base in Crimea, 
I mean, remember, Crimea had been uh, part of the Russian Republic within the Soviet Union until the 1950s when Khrushchev, who was Ukrainian, transferred it to Ukraine. And at the end of the Cold War, there was this very big, important Russian naval base in Crimea. They, they held on to it via a very, very long lease with Ukraine, since, since Crimea was now part of Ukraine after the, uh, the Ukrainian nation after the Cold War. And um, Putin had reason after this revolution coup, whatever, to worry that the lease might not be honored. So, again, his seizing Crimea was a violation of international law. I don't approve of it, but it wouldn't have taken huge imagination for us to realize that he might feel very threatened by uh, the regime we seem to him to have helped install. And I suspect, you know, that this played a big role in his decision to seize Crimea. He didn't want to take any chances. He wanted to hang on to that naval base. And then, of course, he started supporting a separatist movement in eastern Ukraine and so on. And and so then we, you know, uh, we moved to the present uh, mo- moment. Uh, now, Obama resisted calls to send weapons to Ukraine that it would use to fight this kind of simmering civil war with the separatists in, in eastern Ukraine. He worried about very much the kinds of things that have happened. During the Trump administration, the weapons did start to flow. And the Biden administration continued that trend. And increasingly, Ukraine came to seem like and be perceived as by Putin a de facto NATO outpost. There were NATO people training their troops. There were joint Ukrainian-NATO exercises. There were more and more weapons going in. Uh, We don't, I don't know whether that led to uh, intensified hostilities along that border within Ukraine, between the separatists and Ukraine. The Russians claim that. I don't know. But anyway, as of uh, the Biden administration, we've got, more and more, the kind of de facto NATOization of Ukraine. And Putin certainly perceives it that way. And he said as much in in a speech the week before the invasion. This is a speech that Hawks said, oh, he barely mentioned NATO. This isn't about NATO. I counted the number of times he mentioned NATO. It was 40, 40. He went on and on about this de facto NATOization of Ukraine. That's one of the weirdest parts of how the discourse has unfolded, I think, because uh, as you pointed out, I think you've, especially since the invasion, you've written, if you suggest that things like arming Ukraine or encouraging Ukraine to join NATO raised chances of war, you're accused of reciting Putin's talking points or justifying the invasion, even if you, as you have explicitly done a, a number of times, um, repeatedly say that it's unjustified and that and that he bears responsibility for that. That's, a, I think, a normal thing in wartime. Uh, but how has it played out, do you think, in, in the current uh, foreign policy discourse? I have to say I've been kind of depressed by what's happened to discourse since the invasion. You know, I was I opposed the, the Iraq invasion in 2003. And I remember thinking, what this is like. The world has gone crazy. I mean. Uh, even if you accept the claims about these weapons of mass destruction or, well, about the programs to develop weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, 
The UN inspectors are in there. They're being allowed to look everywhere they want to look. We're going to kick them out so we can invade because we think there are, we there are you know, weapons programs that, that these inspectors would eventually discover. It just made no sense. And I have to say, in a somewhat different way, the discourse over Ukraine has been kind of as warped. Uh, in other words, you know, just as if, if you spoke up against the Iraq war, you were accused uh, at first before it went south of being some kind of Saddam Hussein apologist, you know, with Ukraine, if you if you just point out these things that you think were policy mistakes and don't excuse the invasion, you still get accused of being a Putin apologist, reciting Putin talking points and so on. I mean, it's a kind of McCarthyite vibe. You know, I I did my senior thesis in, in college on, on Joseph McCarthy and I'm very sensitive. Uh, I'm very sensitive to this kind of strain when it enters American thought. And I'm just really disappointed by the media coverage, everything uh, about the war, because I think it's very important that we perceive the situation as clearly as we can if we're going to be deciding whether to send weapons and how many weapons to send. And I think the current media environment and the, and the commentary environment is not conducive to clear vision. Anyway, yes, you know, one of the big things is confusion. And, and this is it's a very natural human tendency to do this, but confusion between people trying to explain why Putin did this bad thing and things we might have done to make it less likely that he'd do the bad thing and excusing or justifying the bad thing. This is a very, this is a very natural kind of segue to make in human psychology. It's not shocking that it's happening, but I think, you know, those of us who would like a more peaceful world have to speak out against it and not be intimidated by it. Yeah. You have to keep clarifying. I'm not excusing it. But you also have to call out people who are accusing you of excusing it. So this dynamic actually played itself out um, in a controversy within the restraint community. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing because in prior debates, you know, like in Iraq, there wasn't a restraint community to, to speak of, really. And now it's an actual thing in D.C. So this uh, this dynamic played itself out um, with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. But before we get into exactly what happened there, I wonder if you could just talk about Quincy in general. Many listeners will know about it, but its establishment as a think tank is pretty recent. And, you know, what role does it play in, in, in the discourse, do you think? Yeah, so Quincy has now been around a, a few years. It It is now, I guess, the most prominent institutional embodiment of the kind of restrainer coalition. Although I, I know, you know, other other think tanks are part of this, including Cato. But of course, Cato does domestic policy and a lot of stuff. I mean, Quincy is a dedicated foreign policy think tank. And by virtue of embodying this coalition, it is, you know, kind of transpartisan. There are lefties who support it and are part of it. There are Buchananite conservatives who support it and are part of it. There are libertarian conservatives who support it and are part of it. So they don't agree on everything about foreign policy, but they do agree that America's foreign policy is too militaristic, too confrontational when it comes to things like sanctions um, and and in a way too judgmental, too preachy, right? 
We spend too much time telling other nations how to run their business and telling them what we're going to do to them if they don't shape up. And it may be military intervention. It may be economic leverage. But but damn it, if, if they don't clean up their act, uh, you know, we're going to do something. And, you know, by virtue of embodying a diverse coalition, Quincy is naturally when a complicated issue like Ukraine comes up, you know, is naturally going to see some internal tension. Uh, you know, and I say it's complicated because, again, on the one hand, I think a lot of American policy blunders made this tragedy more likely. On the other hand, the invasion is a violation of international law. So if you, you know, you you could argue that even a restrainer might support sending weapons. And, and some people at Quincy do. And a number of people at, at Quincy have expressly said we should support Ukraine and and and. And some of them definitely mean with weapons, right? Uh, some people may have reservations about that. But but anyway, you're, you're going to naturally have internal tension. And I think there's been a little of that. I'm not aware of there being a lot, but there has been uh, one or two high profile instances lately of people associated with Quincy uh, leaving it at a protest against what they perceived as the Quincy line. There, in fact, is no official Quincy line, really. I mean, they don't generally, you know, put out official formal positions on things. But uh, but the one I think, you know, that that uh, we're both aware of most recently is Joe Serencioni, a guy I think you and I both know, John, and, and I like, uh, who was for a long time president of Plowshares Foundation, uh, which is very much focused on the threat of nuclear war. Um, he resigned as a non-resident fellow and uh, over over Ukraine. Uh, there, there are a lot of non-resident fellows. I mean, they, they're, they're not they're not staffers. They don't get a salary. So they're not they're not kind of central to Quincy's operations. There are dozens of them. But, you know, it's it's interesting if, if one of them feels he can't stay there, you know, uh, the interesting thing about this is how confused I remain as to exactly why Joe did this. Again, I like Joe a lot and have worked with him pretty closely on certain things. But there has been no explanation from him that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, what what he said is that Quincy justified the invasion or people at Quincy justified the invasion. Uh, I went through, I wrote a piece about this in the non-zero newsletter, and I went through and and showed that that seems actually not to be the case. And in fact, uh, the people there whose work I've heard he was unhappy with, including Anatole Levin, have explicitly said that the U.S. should support Ukraine against Russia and and that this invasion is not justifiable. So I... I, you know, I had to speculate in the piece I wrote after I went through the evidence that actually the various people at, at Quincy, including Quincy as an institution, by the way, because although it doesn't uh, take formal positions, it did co-sign a letter that, among other things, did condemn the invasion. So to the extent that Quincy is on the record, it's on the record condemning the invasion. Anyway, after showing that uh, the central players at Quincy 
have, in fact, condemned the invasion and and do advocate Western support for Ukraine. Um, I kind of had to speculate as to why Joe uh, had used the word justify. It said, you know, Quincy's um, justifying the invasion. And the best that I could make out, I mean, he has not elaborated. I've asked him to. I uh, haven't heard back. Um, the best I can make out is he 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 was um, making this inference people commonly make that if you criticize American policies that made the invasion more likely, you're justifying the invasion. He's he's there are a couple of quotes from him who said that a couple of quotes from him that suggested that that's what's going on. Uh, but this is conjecture. And by the way, a kind of a weird postscript to this is after I wrote my piece in Non-Zero, um, you know, Scott Horton, this libertarian who has a podcast and I, I think is at antiwar.com, um, pulled out uh, uh, segments of a transcript of an interview Joe had done with him right around the time of the invasion where Joe made the standard criticisms we're all making. About how, you know, and, and, he, and he, he said, as we all say, we're not justifying the invasion, but, nay, you know, American policy had, as he put it at that point, set the stage for the invasion. That was the phrase he used. And he went through it all, you know, not just NATO expansion, but these uh, missiles uh, in Eastern Europe that we say are anti-missile missiles that are focused on Iran. But as Joe pointed out, from Putin's point of view, that's not very reassuring. He doesn't know for sure what's in those missile tubes. Uh, he doesn't know how, you know, uh, those those things would be used. So I I just I, I don't I don't I don't understand. You know, Joe hasn't said anything since. I respect that if he doesn't want to speak out again. I really like him. He's done a lot of good over the years. But it's it, it, uh, the best I can make out. This is yet another instance of somebody illegitimately inferring from someone's explanation of why something bad happened that they are excusing the bad right. thing. Uh, I should say, yes, uh, I know Joe, and um, I don't understand his reasoning here or, or the, the, the kind that he's given so far, but it's clear that even I mean, this, this uh, ability to make this distinction between explaining and trying to understand the other side and justifying and rationalizing uh, doesn't take an immense intellectual uh, ability to really see that distinction. We know Joe is capable of it because of that past quote, but just in general, this is a super common little glitch in the human mind, and it shows up in in all kinds of ways in, in politics in general. Um, and it's much easier to do if you just uh, if you if what you're trying to do in the discourse is not lay moral blame, um, but to try to understand. That's a key element because you've got to devise wise strategy to be able to see the world through the strategic lens of your opponent. Um, and that's how you approach world politics, trying to incentivize behavior rather than just react to events. You know, reading Robert Jervis is a very famous... The, the late Robert Jervis, who did great work on all of this stuff, including the security dilemma and how things that we might not mean as threatening would be perceived as, as threatening. Yeah, I, I, yeah. you know, Go there's ahead. many quotes from his book that seem to apply to the current situation. This isn't just about our inability to 
properly understand Russia. It's also about our inability to understand ourselves. So Robert Jervis quotes John Foster Dulles saying, quote, Khrushchev does not need to be convinced of our good intentions. He knows we are not aggressors and do not threaten the security of the Soviet Union. And of course, a couple pages later, Jervis points out that, quote, the inability to recognize that one's own actions could be seen as menacing and the concomitant belief that the other's hostility can only be explained by its aggressiveness help explain how conflicts can easily expand beyond that which an analysis of the objective situation would indicate is necessary. In other words, we don't understand how our actions come off to the other side. Right. And there's there's really two dimensions to the security dilemma. On the one hand, the other side may think we have aggressive aspiration when we don't, but the other side may also realize we don't, but worry about what some future administration would do once Ukraine is part of NATO. And, and by the way, the foreign minister Lavrov made this explicit in 2008. You know, in 2008, Bill Burns, who was an ambassador to Russia and who is now head of the CIA and who I wish were secretary of state, um, sent two things back to Washington. He sent, first of all, an email to Condi Rice. This was when Bush was uh, was considering uh, issuing this kind of invitation to Ukraine to to join NATO. And Burns explained to Rice in this e in this email, like it isn't just Putin, everyone in the Russian security uh, national, uh, every elite in the Russian national security establishment considers Ukraine a red line. OK, and then to reinforce this message, he sent a separate memo more broadly to people in the administration about Ukraine membership in NATO. And it was called yet means yet. OK, and one thing he said in that is he had had a conversation with Lavrov, as if I'm recalling this correctly. And Lavrov was very explicit in saying it isn't necessarily that we think you're going to do something. It's that we have to prepare for the future. And so, in other words, Lavrov was articulating that second part of the security dilemma. And this, too, is is a perception that you just if you're going to be in the in the business of foreign policy, you have to be able to understand as a natural perception. It's the kind of thing the Russians are going to worry about. And, uh, you know, again, 2008 was just a big year. The warnings were there. The warnings from Bill Burns are as clear as they can be. And George Bush and the neocons put us on this path. And here we are. You've written a lot about evolutionary psychology. And uh, in this piece on, on your uh, newsletter uh, about uh, Joe's resignation from Quincy, you wrote that the roots of this kind of muddled moral discourse lie in natural selections engineering of the human brain. Uh, explain how this can be true. Yeah. I mean, as I say in the newsletter, I think that's a it's a little conjectural, but there's, you know, I mean, it, it's very hard to to reconstruct the evolution of the human brain. But there is good reason to believe that our kind of cognitive machinery for moral discourse, for arguing about blame and responsibility evolved in a context in which arguments of great consequence were taking shape. You know, within a hunter-gatherer village, if people are, are arguing over who deserves how much food, 
over who did or did not steal whose mate and so on, these things have reproductive consequences. So there, there is reason to speculate that some of the things we see humans doing again and again, such as assuming that if you are trying to explain why somebody did something bad, you're trying to excuse it, that that inference is, is really pretty deeply built into the brain. It's not that you can't override it, but I suspect that if all of us are reflective about our everyday discourse, we can at times catch ourselves doing it. You just you hear somebody explaining why something bad happened. And you just kind of immediately think, oh, they're on that guy's side. They're on the side of the guy who did the bad thing. We just we all do it. You have to you have to fight against it. Um, and I think it's very important to fight against it and try to become more aware of how your own mind is is working and uh, transcend that. Is this a lot about in-group, out-group competition? I mean, the pressure to conform to the in-group is so great that we kind of police uh, voices on the margin, which might try to shed light on the opponent. Yeah, I'd say that's a problem, too. It's, I would say it's probably a somewhat separate dynamic in terms of its evolutionary origin, or at least the, the two things don't entirely overlap. There would be kind of separate reasons for a conformist dynamic to be part of our minds. And, and, and it seems very much to be. It's, it's just very hard to buck the tide uh, when, you know, I saw this during Iraq, uh, during the run up to the Iraq war. It was, it was kind of hard to uh, straightforwardly express my views. And I'm sure I didn't always do it as courageously as I should have. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a separate problem, too. Yeah, and that's why, you know, things like the Restrainer Coalition matter. We need supportive peer groups. And, uh, you know, if, if, if people feel they have to bail out of the, the coalition, then, then they do. But, you know, that's inevitably going to happen, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're sorting out kind of a new coalition. It's very diverse. Issues will arrive that... that uh, lead some people to wonder where they belong, and, and maybe they don't. But the main thing is that the coalition, uh, you know, stays together uh, and, and people draw on, on the energy of it and, and kind of the, the peer support from it. This is one of the reasons I value your writing about foreign policy so much, because I think one of the things that you do is make the point, which is really not a novel point in the academic literature. We mentioned Jervis, and there are many people that came after him working on that same kind of thing. I think in general, DC has a problem. Policymakers have a problem with not drawing uh, completely enough uh, on the academic literature. They're kind of selective and cherry picking at it. But um, you're pointing out something, I think, pretty straightforward. Uh, one, one insight from that uh, academic literature, that rigorous work on international relations, is that we really do need to understand how our minds work and how the uh, adversaries' minds work if we're going to create peace. And this uh, hobby horse of yours of cognitive empathy in issues of international relations and the kind of uh, restraint movement uh, are certainly aligned in that respect. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wrote a whole book on mindfulness meditation. Not that I'm personally a great meditator. You know, it's a challenge to remain mindful. But I, I, I did it in part because I think it's one of the tools we can use to become more aware of our own 
you know, tendencies, the, uh, the various, there are these natural obstacles to cognitive empathy. You know, it's, uh, you know, the human mind is designed to navigate a landscape of zero-sum and non-zero-sum relations, to identify allies, to identify enemies, rivals, and then perceive them accordingly. And once you perceive someone as a rival or an enemy, that can distort your thinking in particular ways about what's going on in their brain. And, you know, there's something called attribution error, which I've written about elsewhere in my newsletter that does some of the warping. But I think, you know, the more where we are, that the human mind was not designed strictly to see the world accurately, but was rather designed ultimately to get genes into the next generation. The more we're aware of that and the more we're aware of tools we can use to transcend some of the some of the biases that were built into the brain by natural selection, you know, the better off the world will be. And I, I think right now we're at a point in history where it's really critical. You know, we just, there are just too many globally consequential issues out there that need to be addressed that aren't being addressed. And here I speak as a, you know, progressive member of the Restrainer Coalition when I mention, uh, well, you know, look, various conservatives would agree with me on some of this, but uh, but I would mention things like climate change, like uh, nuclear arms proliferation, the problem of bioweapons, which we're just not addressing at all, uh, cyber weapons, weapons in space. There's all these things that could have catastrophic consequences, and we're not even talking about them. We're busy having these wars that we didn't even need to have, and we just can't afford to keep doing this. I think that's a good place to leave it. Bob, thank you for uh, for joining us. Thank you.